So we were talking uh, yesterday about a, what I would view as a degeneration in contemporary, even conservative, reformed, and evangelical thought related to the doctrine of God, and I suggested to you that part of the problem is we have lost uh, the grammar, if you will, of classical Christian teaching on our triune God. And what that means, therefore, is that the path to recovery is learning to recover that grammar, learning to uh, sing the tune of Zion, the songs of praises to our God. And I suggested that doing that involves kind of two separate moments. One involves understanding uh, why it is that God is able to speak to us in human language. And we looked yesterday at the reason for that and the fact that the world that God has made is theomorphic. It resembles him. Psalm 104 says that God has covered the seas with waters and he's covered the expanse of the heavens with light. And yet the waters of the sea have a boundary and the, the lights of the heavens have their limits as well. And these are there to teach us of the one who is the unbounded depth of wisdom. They are there to teach us of the one who is the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I want to turn uh, this morning to the second question that is essential, I think, to recovering a proper way of thinking and speaking about God as he reveals himself to us in his word. And the question I want to address here is, how is it that this transcendent God, the creator of all things, the God who created a world to reflect and reveal his glory to us, how is it that he stoops down to speak to us in our language? And as we've seen that the world that God created is theomorphic, we'll see that we confront an interesting challenge here because the language that God speaks to us is thoroughly anthropomorphic. He does not speak in the tongues of angels. He does not speak in the single transcendent word of the second person of the Trinity, which he alone understands fully, and which alone understands himself. But he stoops down to us, and through that word, speaks to us in our language. Now, when we turn to the issue of theological language, the, the linguistic nature of analogical predication, we come up against uh, what has been, again, central to some of the discussions and debate in recent days related to the doctrine of God. And we come to, really, some questions that lie at the heart of Christian piety and, and the desire to take God's word seriously in terms of what it reveals about himself. I want to read to you a couple of quotes uh, from one person who has raised questions about classical Christian teaching upon the doctrine of God, someone who is not attempting to be a revisionist in theological method or in theological content, but who would be uh, someone we regard as a stalwart in many ways of conservative reformed theology. But l listen to uh, how he expresses um, the desire to be faithful to biblical language and, and, and the, the concern that maybe this requires a revision in, in our doctrine of God. He says, it seems to me that the process and openness theists had gotten hold of something in the biblical text 
something orthodox theologians would have to deal with without taking the path of correlativism. That something was that in Scripture, God does enter into genuinely personal relationships with human beings. Genuine personal relationships with human beings. God enters into covenants, right? This is at the center of our theology. God speaks to us and he invites us to speak back to him. And indeed, we've spent an hour and a half this morning answering the call to speak back to him. Doesn't scripture teach that God enters into genuinely personal relationships with his creatures? And the answer is, of course it does. But does that fact call for a transformation in the doctrine of God? That's the question. Note also that this rubs up against an issue that I want to spend a little bit of time perhaps this morning talking about as well, the issue of literal versus metaphorical speech. And indeed, oftentimes we confuse the issue of genuineness in Revelation with the issue of literal versus metaphorical. I want to suggest to you as we go on, these are slightly different things. I quote again uh, from the same theologian. He says, in fact, texts like, I change not, which yield metaphysical truth about God, are fairly rare in Scripture. Most of the statements about God in Scripture are mutabilist. One can argue that the metaphysical statements should take, I'm sorry, one could argue that the metaphysical statements should take second place to the mutabilist ones in a legitimate hermeneutic. Why should we not say, the word became flesh is literal, and I change not is figurative. Well, I trust that uh, the issues are significantly raised to demand our attention for a little bit this morning. So, how is it that a transcendent God speaks truly of himself, indeed genuinely of himself, in our language? Well, the answer is that Biblical discourse concerning God, and indeed all other forms of discourse that are generated by Scripture as faithful representations of Scripture, are anthropomorphic in nature, and they operate according to a twofold analogical grammar. To put it in a slightly uh, different idiom, perhaps clearer idiom, God speaks of himself in our language. Sometimes he speaks literally. Sometimes he speaks metaphorically. Always he speaks analogically. Well, I want to pack uh, what this means. Um, now, the thing is here is when we bring uh, the, the discussion yesterday of, of, of the metaphysical nature of the resemblance between creature and creator... And today, the the linguistic nature of God's speech to us, we run against the interesting thing, right? We talked about a one-way relationship between creator and creature yesterday, right? We were made to resemble God. God does not resemble us. It's a one-way relationship. But now we're talking about the arrow moving in a different direction. When God speaks to us, he takes up language whose native habitat is this world. Language that was hammered out in the speech to refer to rocks and trees and men and women and boys and girls. And he uses our very language as part of his condescending grace to speak of his transcendent 
glory. Well, how, linguistically speaking, does the one who is metaphysically primary analog of all perfection speak in the language of the secondary analog? That is the question we want to answer. And of course, immediately we can dismiss some impossible answers to this question. Right? It can't be that God speaks in a way that is univocal. Right? When God says he is wise, he, we don't understand wisdom in the same way when it says that Solomon is wise. And so we're not talking about univocal language. We can also rule out the idea that God speaks in a way that is equivocal, in a way that the statement God is wise and Solomon is wise have completely unrelated meanings. Right? We, we must dismiss a pure apophaticism that would suggest that really all we know about God is what we don't know. We know what he is not. Now, we saw even yesterday the way of negation, the way of denying limits to God is rooted in a perception of, of the affirmation of his perfection. Right? It is the depths of his undoubted wisdom that are unlimited. Well, this leaves us with the only other option, that when God stoops down to speak to us in our language, he speaks analogically of himself. The question, though, is what is the nature of this analogical predication? And here we get to the reason why yesterday's discussion was so important. Because our doctrine of creation and our doctrine of God's design in making himself known through creation, and indeed the ultimate Christological and eschatological purposes of that doctrine that we mentioned yesterday as well. These give us the, the rails, if you will, that determine how we must speak and think about the nature of analogical language. They set before us uh, four things, four desiderata, if you will, that we're looking for in a proper approach to analogy. Let me give them very briefly and then we'll, we'll kind of see how a, a proper approach to analogy can answer these. First, we need an approach to analogy that does not rest on what we might call gross metaphysical anthropomorphism. Okay? The idea here is that we need an approach to analogy that does not suggest that human beings or creatures in any other way are metaphysically primary and that God is just a gigantic version of that primary analog. Right? You remember Ludwig Feuerbach. This is his criticism of all religion. Religion is just a projection of our own aspirations, of our own values. What we imagine is the biggest and best thing around, and we just name that thing God. Well, no. Uh, God is not made in our image. We are made in His. And so our approach to analogy must, must rule out this, this gross metaphysical anthropomorphism. But we also need, secondly, an approach to analogy that does not fall prey to what we might call Subtle metaphysical anthropomorphism. Okay? Uh, this approach doesn't assume that the creature is the primary analog, metaphysically speaking, that God is the secondary analog, a, a bigger version of the creature. But this, perhaps more modestly, but, but for that reason, perhaps uh, in a more deceiving way, suggests that God and human beings are both members of some larger kind. Right? God is the, the greatest version of this kind. We are finite versions of this kind. But at the end of the day, God and creatures share some kind of common properties that we can maybe 
discern and define. So to be personal is to be X, Y, Z. And God may be an infinite person, and we may be finite persons, but to be a person is to be this. But of course, this is also ruled out by our discussion yesterday. God is responsible for creating all the kinds of creatures that exist, right? He, he caused the animals to reproduce after their kinds. He caused Adam and Eve to, to reproduce uh, image bears after their kind. But the God who created all the kinds of creatures is not one of those kinds. He is one, right? And when we say God is one, we're not saying, this is not like counting jelly beans. There's one red one, there's one blue one, there's one brown one, okay? Right? He is one in a transcendent sense. He's in a class by himself. In fact, even that's a a failure to speak appropriately. He is the one true God. And so we need an approach to analogy that does not fall prey to subtle metaphysical anthropomorphism either. Third, in terms of desiderata for, for an appropriate understanding of analogical predication. We need an approach to analogy that helps us appreciate the strange ways God uses human language to speak reliably about himself. The strange ways that, to use terminology I'll use in a moment, the higher register appropriates the lower register to reliably reveal himself. And then fourth, we need an approach to analogy that helps us distinguish literal and metaphorical language about God. Well, very quickly, I want to look at, at four ways of responding to these four needs. First, talking about the nature of analogical predication. A second, discussing brief, briefly what C.S. Lewis calls transposition. I think it's a very helpful illustration of, of what's going on when God speaks to us in our language. Uh, then talk about two kinds of analogical predication, literal and metaphorical. And then finally, I want to look at some specific passages in scripture and see what it means, see, see how this understanding of analogy helps us to read the text, I think, as it intends to be read. How this approach to analogy can help us retrieve our fluency in reading scripture's revelation of God and returning our praise to God. So, first, the nature of analogical predication. This helps us with the first two desiderata regarding a proper approach to analogy. Uh, The right kind of analogy is is one that Richard Muller argues that you see exhibited in most Reformed Orthodox theologians into uh, the 17th century. There's There's a long pedigree of Reformed thinking that treats analogy in this way. And we might call this this approach to analogy, although there are a number of different labels that we could give it, uh, it's fourfold analogy. Okay? Here's the idea in fourfold analogy. You've got two pairs. And the relationship between A and B is analogous to the relationship between C and D. Some illustrations. One that is commonly given is the relationship between uh, a captain and a ship and a governor and his commonwealth. The idea here is that the captain's leadership of his ship is both similar and dissimilar to the governor's leadership of a commonwealth. Or another illustration, uh, the relationship between an eye, an eye in a tree, and the mind in the Pythagorean theorem. And again, the idea is that the eye's perception of a tree is both similar to and dissimilar to uh, 
the mind's perception of the Pythagorean theorem. And then the last uh, illustration I want to give, uh, this will please the Anglophiles in our midst, uh, the relationship between Leicester Square and Piccadilly Circus on a London subway map versus the relationship between Leicester Square and Piccadilly, uh, I'm sorry, Piccadilly Circus in the city of London. Now, the idea here is that the relationship between those two points on the subway map is both similar and dissimilar to the relationship between these two locations in the actual city. Now, note what this approach to analogy does for us, and note how it meets our first two requirements for an appropriate approach to analogy. First of all, it does not presuppose any necessary connection between analogs. Okay? There's no necessary connection between the eye's perception of the tree and the mind's perception of the Pythagorean theorem. Right? There's no necessary connection between the captain of a ship and the governor of a commonwealth. Right? So you're not saying one is somehow dependent on the other, or that they're both members of a larger class. You're just saying that there's a similarity between the way this relates to this and the way that relates to that. And so this avoids kind of making one the metaphysical basis of the other. It avoids putting both of them as members of a larger class. But note also that this approach to analogy does provide a way of describing similarities and dissimilarities between analogs that are characterized by a one-way relationship. And the example would be the subway map of London versus the city of London. Right? The map is made to represent London in some way. But London has no intrinsic relationship to the subway map. And if the subway didn't exist and the map didn't exist, London would be London. Well, this is a helpful way of thinking about the relationship between God and his perfections and his actions, right? And the language of creatures made to resemble God, the language which God uses to represent himself to us. Well, here's where C.S. Lewis's notion of transposition becomes helpful. When God speaks to himself, I'm sorry, speaks about himself and to himself, Psalm 110, but that's another story. When God speaks about himself analogously in our language, when God maps himself in our language, he engages in what C.S. Lewis calls transposition. Now, many of you will have read uh, Lewis's little sermon on transposition. Uh, What is transposition? Lewis says, transposition occurs when the higher the higher register, reproduces itself in the lower. And he gives a number of examples of transposition as he understands it. Transposition occurs in the way that different emotions can present themselves in the same physical reactions. He he quotes a a famous line where someone's talking about the the feeling of, of sickness they feel when they're in love very similar to the feeling of of sickness you feel when you're sick. And he says, note, this physical sensation is the same physical sensation. Okay? And this is often true with our varied and diverse emotional life. Because we're talking about a lower register of meaning, the physical, right? The same register must do different work to reflect a diverse set of realities. He gives the example of a picture of a road 
Okay, have a three-dimensional road that's disappearing into the distance. And he says, when you try to picture this two-dimensionally, right, you have to use the same lines you would use to draw an acute angle, not to represent an acute angle, but to represent a road disappearing into the distance. Once again, a, a poorer medium must put the, the members of that medium to different uses to communicate and represent a higher medium. And then the other uh, illustration he gives is the illustration of when uh, you take a, a piece of music written for a full orchestra and then play that only on a piano. Right? The piece that was designed to, to have many different and varied sounds and instruments in play. Right? Now you have to take all that diversity and represent it in one musical instrument. He says, the one who knows the orchestra piece, who's listened to it in the symphony, can hear in the piano the, the transposition that has occurred. And what you have is, while you have a reliable communication of the piece, you also have a diminishment, right? Because you're using a, a, a medium that has less options for communication in it. Well, the character of, of transposition, as Lewis discusses it, uh, carries a number of interesting features that are important for the topic at hand. First, Lewis says that there's no one-to-one correspondence between higher and lower registers. This is a very important point. There's no one-to-one correspondence between higher and lower registers. He says, we tend to go wrong in assuming that if there is to be a correspondence between two systems, it must be a one-to-one correspondence. That A in the one system must be represented by little a in the other and so on. But the correspondence between emotion and sensation turns out to be not one of that sort. In other words, there aren't as many physical sensations as there are emotions. And that's why different emotions represent themselves in similar physical sensations. Second, the reason for this is that the lower register is the poorer register. Third, therefore, the language of the lower register must be put to multiple new uses by the higher register to convey the meaning of the higher register. And I've mentioned a bit of what he says about that already. The last thing he says, though, is that transposition, for, for all its limitations, it never, is nevertheless an adequate mode of communication. Right? When the higher register communicates itself in the lower register, it really communicates itself. Right? And indeed, uh, the mode of its communication is its communication. Right? It, it's not a shadow. It's not a veil. It, 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 it's, not a, it's not a mirage. Right? The higher register really does present itself to it. He, he says, you take away the sensation from emotion, you've taken away the emotion. Right? The emotion has that, that irreducible physical element to it. And of course, this is helpful in thinking about God's speech to us because we understand that when God reveals himself to us, even in human words, he really, in reliability, is revealing himself. Right? Though he lisps to us, as a mother to babies. It is he who lisps. Right? It is he who addresses us truthfully, reliably, faithfully. Now, I want to briefly mention uh, two kinds of analogical predication and, and look at a few examples uh, in, in Scripture. 
And so, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to rush very, very quickly here. Two kinds of analogical predication, literal and metaphorical. This is, I think, a very important distinction to get in mind, and I think one of the biggest confusion and, and some of the contemporary discussions is the inability to distinguish the issue of analogical versus univocal from the issue of literal versus metaphorical. These are not equivalent pairs. Uh, I'll repeat the statement I made earlier to, to kind of summarize what I want to say here. God speaks of himself to us in our language. Sometimes he speaks literally. Sometimes he speaks metaphorically. Always he speaks analogically. Well, how, how should we think about this? Let's uh, unpack this a bit. First, God speaks of himself to us in our language. God is wise. Solomon is wise. And these statements, in terms of English grammar, are, are parallel in every way. You've got subject, you've got predicate. God is our rock and our refuge. Mount Zion was David's rock and refuge. Again, parallel statements in English. Subject, predicate. It's no angelic language. It's plain old English and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Well, God speaks of himself to us in our language, but he speaks sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, always analogically. When we say God is wise, again, think of fourfold analogy. God and his wisdom, A and B, we're saying there's some similarity and dissimilarity between Solomon and his wisdom, C and D. They're analogical predications. When we say God is our rock, when we say Mount Zion is David's rock, again, A and B, there's some, similar, there's some relationship between A and B that's similar and dissimilar to the relationship between C and D. Now here's where we get to the distinction between literal versus metaphorical. In the first analogy, God is literally wise. In the second analogy, God is metaphorically a mountain fortress. Why is that? The first analogy involves a literal predication because wisdom belongs both to the nature of A, God, and C, Solomon. Now, they're not wise in the same ways. There's no common class of wisdom of which both would be members. And certainly it's not that Solomon's wisdom is the basis for understanding God's wisdom. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God is the paradigm of wisdom. Solomon is the created reflection. But both are literally wise in their own ways, in their own distinct ways. God is divinely wise. Solomon is, by God's grace, humanly wise. Well, when it comes to the second description, God is our rock and our refuge, Mount Zion is David's rock and refuge. Here's where we see the difference between literal and metaphorical speech. Okay? In the second example, in the second analogy, A, B, and C, D, uh, it involves metaphorical predication because being a mountain fortress, that is being composed of rock and so forth, spatially located, belongs to the nature of C, Mount Zion, but does not belong to the nature of A, God. Now, the solidity, the security of Mount Zion resembles something about God. 
okay? But it does not belong to God's nature to be, again, made of granite, located in Palestine, and so forth. And this is the nature of metaphorical predication. Uh, One person summarized the difference, and I think in a very helpful way, in talking about the ways we have to distinguish between two different kinds of things. When we say, the Lord is my rock, or when we say, God is good, he says, the first of these is quite compatible with its denial. Of course, God's not my rock. That's not what I'm saying, like a rock. But the second is not. You can't say, of course, God is not good. Right? The second, though, is, is consistent with a, a qualification. God is good, of course, not in the way that we're good. He's infinitely good. He's the original good. He's the supreme good. He's the all-satisfying good. Whereas the first isn't capable of qualification. You wouldn't say, well, God is my rock, but not in the way that Zion is David's rock. Because that's precisely what you're saying. No, and actually, the way that David finds security in Zion is the way we find security in God. And so... These, this distinction, I think, is a very helpful way of understanding the difference between the kinds of analogical predication that God uh, makes in Scripture regarding himself and that we as faithful ministers of Scripture in our preaching of God, in our prayers to God, in our praise of God, in our service at the Lord's table, ways we can faithfully represent scriptural teaching. Well, I want to take the last few minutes and look at very briefly a few texts and and, and see how this uh, plays out in in thinking about these texts. Uh, First one is 1 John 1, 5. John says that we have been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ something about God. And it's frankly a rather metaphysical sounding statement. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Note again, this is ordinary human speech. Subject, God, predicate. Including an affirmation, he's light, and a negation. There's no darkness at all in him. This is no special language. This is language of light and darkness. The language we use every day. Note secondly, this is ordinary speech, but it's applied analogically to God. Note there's a similarity between the way John says God is light and the way that we attribute other things to other people. Okay? When you say God is light, we are predicating something of a personal subject. And the best way to to, to see this is that what we're not doing is we're not turning light into a kind of platonic form. We're not saying light is God. That would actually be an a unfaithful statement. And when sometimes people say, love is God, that is an unfaithful statement. Okay, no, it's God who is light, right? We're affirming the identity of light with God, not of God with light. We're affirming the identity of love with God, not of God with love. Okay, God is love. This one, he is love, and what he is and who he is and how he is defines what love is. But, while there is a similarity of speech, right, we predicate things of God as we predicate things of others, right? There is a profound dissimilarity here as well. God is light. Think about this. Not God is a light. Genesis 1 talks about a light 
for the day, a light for the night. Right? It doesn't even say God is bright. Right? When you say so-and-so is wise, you don't say so-and-so is wisdom. But John says our Lord has taught us to say, God is light. He is identical with light. And indeed, in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and God is nothing but light. But again, you think of the human being, the wisest person you know. You never say he is wisdom and he's nothing but wisdom. Someone can grow in wisdom. Someone can decrease in wisdom. Someone can be completely foolish and still be the one they are. But God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Unmixed glory. Unmixed beauty is the Lord our God. Second text, very quickly. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. And by the way, 1 John 1, 5 following the path we've taken the last two days, that's the long path that leads to the doctrine of simplicity, among other things. Right? Again, sometimes we, 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 get, we get a little upset because uh, where's the chapter and verse on, on this particular doctrine? Um, but it's, I find it odd when Presbyterians like us get, get, get upset about that. Um, when someone comes to your church and wants to join your church and they say, hey, I've never heard about baptizing babies before, why do you do that? Right? What do you say, John Payne? It's a long story. Let's talk. Right? Because we understand that our doctrines are, are, are not built on a word here and on a verse there, but on the whole counsel of God, understanding how the whole thing fits together. And so with the doctrine of simplicity. All right. Sorry. That was a little bit of a rabbit trail. 1 Timothy six fifteen and 16. The blessed and only sovereign... Glorious doxological statement. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. And I find it so fascinating. This concludes a long discussion where he started talking about money and contentment. He's gone through talking about creation and redemption the pastoral calling, and he concludes with talking about divine beatitude. Again, there's a, there's a whole other sermon for that. But note again, ordinary speech. Titles are used here. Blessed and only sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords. Terminology that can be used of, of, of many different types of creatures, sovereignty, immortality, light, vision, so forth. But it's ordinary speech applied analogically to God. This king of kings and lord of lords, and by the way, you've seen in the ancient world that title used of human beings as well. So even that is, is, is not, strictly speaking, a title that, like the divine name, Yahweh, is only used of God. This title is even used elsewhere, idolatrously to be sure, but, but the point is this is ordinary speech. But he alone possesses immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. Now think of this description, right? Think of, of, of what it says about the light of God. I think the divine invisibility here applies not only to physical perception, but I think it also applies to intellectual perception. God does not have a body that can be seen with the, with the eyes of flesh. 
nor does God have a nature that can be fully comprehended and defined by the eye of the mind. He dwells in unapproachable light. The doctrine of divine incomprehensibility is in this statement. But note gloriously why he's incomprehensible. It's not because he's a dark riddle. It's because he is bright and brightest of light. Right? The reason God cannot be comprehended is not because he, he's a dark riddle. It's because his light and his beauty is supremely meaningful. It, it's a surpassingly meaningful and beautiful glory that characterizes our God. And that puts limits to what we can possibly comprehend. I'll say one last thing about this verse, and, and I'll have to leave aside uh, the other place I wanted to go uh, for the sake of having some time for a Q&A. But the last statement, glorious statement in this description of our great God in 1 Timothy 6 is that he dwells in unapproachable light. When, when Bavink comes to the end of his discussion of the divine perfections, he lists three summative attributes, three attributes that kind of capture and, and summarize all the attributes combined. He talks about divine perfection, right, which speaks of the supremacy of God and all of his being, wisdom, power, and goodness. He talks about the divine glory, God's luminosity, that God is light, God, he's, he's brilliant, he's clear, he's intelligible, superabundantly so, beyond our comprehension, but nevertheless, glorious light. But the last one he mentions, and I think in some ways is the pinnacle, the summary of all God's attributes in a way, is beatitude. And this is what Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 6. The blessed, the happy and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light. Now that dwelling in unapproachable light, it objectively refers to, of course, God's nature. He is light. Where does he live? <laughs> what is the atmosphere of his being? Is light. But I think the language of dwelling in is, also refers to something subjective in God. It refers to the, the beatitude of God. Our God reposes in his glory with infinite satisfaction. Now, brothers, the reason that learning to read the Bible the reason that learning to read the world as the revelation of God, the reason this matters is because what God has done in his word is he's revealed himself to be the blessed and triune God. And the reason he's revealed himself to be the blessed and triune God, the reason he made the world the way he made it is with all of its beauty, with all of its delight and satisfaction. The reason he sent his beloved son to assume our nature to be our husband and our high priest, to redeem us from our sins, to, to ascend to his right hand and to reign over the nations. The reason he has poured out his spirit into our hearts to open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, our hearts that we may understand is because this blessed and triune God who dwells in a high and holy place, who inhabits eternity and who dwells in unapproachable light he wills to make his homeland among us. He wills to dwell in our midst. Beatitude, friends, 
is a communicable attribute. And God wishes to communicate his happiness to us. Well, learning to think rightly, learning to speak rightly, learning to read rightly about this beatitude is for God's glory and honor, but is for our supreme joy and happiness in him as well. And this is why it's something that matters and something that we should uh, care a great deal about. All right, I've got some other thoughts here about kind of practical helps. Uh, how might we think better about these things? But maybe we can bring them back in uh, Q&A or maybe the panel discussion this afternoon. But time for some questions. Can we still do that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand the difference between literal and metaphorical. Yeah. So if we use the word just, God is just. Yes. God is judge. Yes. Yeah. So how do I really distinguish between those? No, I, I, I would say God is literally just and literally judge. Okay. Because he holds the station in the universe of sovereign king over all he's made and, and therefore judge. Um, now, God is judge in his way. He's not judge in the way that the Supreme Court is full of judges and so forth. But, but I, I would say, because it, the idea is it refers to something proper of his nature, proper to his activity. And to act in the role of judge is proper to God, right? Um, it's not something that's just proper of the creaturely analog. And, and somehow more distantly reflective of God, no, we see God as judge. I think it's analogically, but literally true of God. Yeah, there's a very long answer to the question, and maybe give a little bit longer answer later. But the short answer is the 18th and 19th centuries were not good centuries for for us um, or for anyone. And um, (laughs) when it comes to theology, uh, I I think that both of the things you said are part of the explanation. I think there was a, a decreasing familiarity with kind of classical Christian teaching, classical Christian texts. Um... There are new approaches to interpretation of Scripture that, that would kind of displace these things. But then you also had the rise of new ways of thinking about this. And, and one of the biggest and most influential ways that you see the impact, especially in kind of North American evangelical Reformed thinking, is from kind of 19th century German attempts to think about God as absolute personality. Okay? It's just a different way. It, it's really an example of that kind of subtle metaphysical anthropomorphism, I think. Uh, but it's funny, anytime you're reading through the long, say, God, God is both absolute and personal. Like, that doesn't come out of nowhere. So that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of deliverance of the 19th century. And again, there might even be a way you can say that and, and, and say it legitimately, but the point is, we're trying to make sense of things in, using a different framework than historically we have done. And so I think it's, there's, a, there's both a, a, a lack of familiarity, and then there's some new kind of frameworks that are coming in. And those are two examples. Uh, there, there are some other influences as well. Yeah. Human language is, I mean, obviously, 
it's a creature, so it means God made it, right? Uh, but human language, it's native habitat, right? It, it's, it's humanity. It's, it's not angelic language. It, it's certainly not the second person of the Trinity who is the word uh, of God. And so uh, it, it's, the point I'm trying to make is that God, you know, God wants to make friends with us, and friends have to speak the same language, and he stoops down to use our language, um, so it is obviously it's a creature of God in the broad sense that all things are creatures of God. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, language is part of creation that resembles God. So absolutely. Yeah. So that's the connection between kind of yesterday and today. So absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, there are similarities, uh, because that was, is dealing with kind of incomprehensibility, comprehensibility of God. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a slightly different issue, um, I think, or, or maybe it's a family of issues, but, but, but yes, these things tend to recycle themselves, don't they? One last question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the question is, someone who would maybe disagree with me, where specifically would they disagree with what I've said today? Um, they probably want to go back to yesterday, um, and, 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 the way I've talked about God as cause, creatures as effects, God as infinite perfection and so forth. There may be some uh, disagreements there uh, because, again, I think that metaphysically, you've got to start with God and creation, not language. You've got to start with the reality. Uh, there might be a desire to, well, no, let's just look at the Bible. Um, now, I want to look at the Bible, but I want to look at what the Bible says about the nature of reality. Okay? It's a, it's a way of Scripture interpreting Scripture, if you will. Uh, then I think some of the things today, it, it probably depends on who you talk to. But I do think sometimes there's, I think sometimes in people's minds, there's an identification of literal with univocal, and there's an identification of metaphorical with analogical. And what I'm suggesting is we need to break both of those relations. Um, I think if we were to start spelling out, okay, what does this look like in interpretation of various texts? I, I think that the tradition had a consistent reason, and, and, and again, no time to get into this. For, for, for which kind of passages were taken metaphorically versus literally. I think it's a, there's a consistent hermeneutic at play. I think that's where also people start saying, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're saying it's metaphorically, you're saying it's not real, which is exactly not what I'm saying. Okay, I'm just saying that God, there's a transposition taking place. Okay, and I think it's a meaningful transposition. And, and I would go to Jeremiah and, and some other places to talk about why God stoops down and speaks metaphorically in this way. But I think that's also where there'd be kind of the applications for exegesis, you'd start seeing some disagreements.